Chapter 10, Using Language Well. Chapter Objectives. 1. Understand the power of language to define our world and our relationship to the world. 2. Choose language that positively impacts the ability to inform and persuade. 3. Choose language to create a clear and vivid message. 4. Use language that is ethical and accurate. 5. Use language to enhance his or her speaker credibility. Introduction. The power of language. Imagine for a moment that you are asked to list everything that you know about the country of Italy in spite of the fact that you have never actually visited the country. What would you write? You would have to think about all you were told about Italy throughout your life and you would probably list the first bits of information that have been repeated to you by various people and in a variety of contexts. So, for example, you might recall that in geography class you learned particular things about Italy. You might also recall the various movies you've seen that were either supposedly set in Italy or dealt with some element of what has been deemed by the film as Italian culture. Those movies could include The Godfather, The Italian Job, or The Da Vinci Code. You might think about other stories your Italian grandmother told you about her childhood spent in Rome, or remember images that you have seen in history books as well as World War II. In other words, Throughout your life, you have learned a lot of different things that, now, now, that you now assume to be true about this country called Italy. And you've learned all these things about Italy through language, whether it be through verbal storytelling or through your interpretation of images in a book or a screen. Now, consider for a moment the possibility that everything you've heard about Italy has been incorrect. Since you have not ever actually been to the country and had first-hand experience with its ge geography and culture, for example, how would you know if what you've been told is true or not? Language is one of the most influential and powerful aspects of our daily lives, yet very few people pay attention to it in their interpersonal and public communication. The power of language cannot be overemphasized. Language constructs, reflects, and maintains our social realities or what we believe to be true with regard to the world around us. The point of the example above is that what we know is true about a person, place, thing, idea, or any other aspect of our daily, daily lives very much depends on what experiences we have had or not what information we have or have not come across, and what words people have used or not used when communicating about our world. Language can also have an impact on how we feel about this reality. How we define words and how we feel about those words is highly subjective. In fact, Cognitive psychologist Lyra Boroditsky showed a key to a group of Spanish speakers and to a group of German speakers. The researchers then asked the participants to describe the key that had been shown. Because of the Spanish word for key is gendered and feminine, 
Spanish speakers define the key using words such as lovely, tiny, and magic. The German word for key is gender masculine, however, and German speakers define the key using adjectives like hard, jagged, and awkward. Bordisky cited in Thomas et al. 2003, page 22 through 27. This study suggests that the words we use to define something can have an impact on how we perceive what those words represent. Because language is such a powerful yet unexamined part of our lives, this chapter focuses on how language functions and how competent speakers harness the power of knowledge. Consider the case of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Indeed, many speakers before him made the very same persuasive arguments regarding the lack of civil rights for black Americans. Yet we regularly po point to the Reverend Dr. King as a preeminent speaker for the civil rights movement because he was a master of language. He employed the power of language to move his audiences in ways they had not been moved before. And we remember him for his eloquence. Communication versus language. To understand the power of language, we need to differentiate between communication and language. Communication occurs when we try to transfer what is in our minds to the minds of our audience. Whether speaking to inform, persuade, or entertain, the main goal of the speaker is to effectively communicate his or her thoughts to audience members. Most chapters in this text help you determine how to best communicate information through considerations such as organizational structure, audience analysis, delivery, and the like. Language, on the other hand, is the means by which we communicate a system of symbols we use to form messages. We learn language as a child in order to read, write, and speak. Once we have mastered enough language, we can communicate with relative ease. Yet, growing up, we rarely learn much about language choices and what they mean for our communication. We regularly hear people say, if we just communicated more or for longer periods of time, we would better understand each other. What these types of statements reflect is our lack of understanding of the differences between communication and language. Therefore, many of us believe when problems arise, we, we should strive to have more communication between the parties. But what we need is better communication by focusing on language choice. Language creates social realities. Our social realities are constructed through language. And therefore, people with different experiences in and understandings of the world can define the same things in very different ways. Language is culturally transmitted. We learn how to define our world first from our families and then later, and then our later definitions of the world are influenced by friends and institutions such as media, education, and religion. If we grow up in a sexist culture, we are likely to hold sexist attitudes. Similarly, if we grow up in a culture that defines the environment as our first priority in making any decisions, we're likely to grow with environmentally friendly attitudes. Language, then, is not neutral. As a culture, 
as groups of people and as individuals, we decide what words we're going to use to define one thing or another. For public speakers, these facts are important for three primary reasons. First, the careful use of language can make the difference between you giving a remarkable speech and one that is utterly forgettable. Second, you must remember that audience members may not share the same language for the definition of the very same ideas, realities, or even specific items. Finally, the language you use in public and even private communication says something about you, about how you define the world, therefore perceive the world. If you are not careful with your language, you may unintentionally communicate something negative about yourself simply because of a careless use of language. You should think very carefully about your audiences and your own language when you prepare to speak publicly. You can master all of the elements in this textbook, but without an effective use of language, those other mastered skills will not mean much to your audience. The suggestions in this chapter will help you communicate as effectively as possible using appropriate and expressive language. You'll also learn about language to avoid so that your language leaves the audience with a positive impression of you. The differences language choices can make. When I discuss the importance of language choice with my students, I generally begin with two different paragraphs based on a section from Reverend Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition speech. The first paragraph I read them is a section of the Reverend Jackson's speech that I have rewritten. The second paragraph is the actual text from Reverend Jackson's speech. Let's start with my revision first. America should dream, choose people over building bombs, destroy the weapons, and don't hurt the people. Think about a new system of values. Think about lawyers more interested in the law than promotions. Consider doctors more interested in helping people get better than in making money. Imagine preachers and priests who will preach and not just solicit money. This paragraph is clear and simple. It gets to the point, gets the point across to the audience. But compare my version of his paragraph to Reverend Jackson's actual words. Young America dream. Choose the human race over the nuclear race. Bury the weapons and don't burn the people. Dream of a new value system. Dream of lawyers more concerned about justice than judgeship. Dream of doctors more concerned about public health than personal wealth. Dream of preachers and priests who will prophecy and not just profiteer. The significant difference between these two versions of the paragraph can be explained simply as the difference between carefully choosing one group of words over another group of words. My version of the speech is fine, but it is utterly forgettable. Reverend Jackson's exact wordings, however, is stunning. The audience probably remembered his speech and the chills that went down their spines when they heard it long after it was over. This example, I hope, exemplifies the difference language choice can make. 
Using language in a way that makes you and your speech memorable, however, takes work. Few people come by this talent naturally, so give yourself plenty of time to rework your first draft to fine-tune and perfect your language choice. Some of the strategies discussed below will help you in this process. Hi class, this is Dr. T here, and this is a scheduled break time in your chapter material. Welcome back. We're continuing with Chapter 10, Using Language Well. The Importance of Ethical and Accurate Language, Language and Ethics. As was noted at the beginning of this chapter, language is culturally transmitted. We learn our language from those around us. For most of us, this means that we may first learn from language from our parents. But as we grow older, other family members, friends, educators, and even the media impact our vocabularies and our choices regarding what language we use. Think about a world without language. Quite simply, we'd have no way of participating in our world without it. People constantly produce language to categorize and organize the world. Think back to our discussion of how language influences your social reality. In my work as a mentor, I tutored a girl in elementary school who had a very difficult time saying the word lake. I used the word lake as a part of our homework exercise. What I had not realized was that she had never seen a lake, either in person or in a picture, or if she had seen a lake, no one had pointed to that body of water and called it a lake. The concept of a lake was simply not in her reality. No lakes existed in her world. This is a key example of how the language that we learn and that we choose to use says something about our social reality. Consider the above example another way. Let's say that my young friend had seen a lake and knew how to say the word and what the word referred to, but that she had only been privy to people who had used the word negatively. If throughout her life, lakes were discussed as bad things or to be avoided, she would have had a very different perspective on lakes than most people. Switching this example around demonstrates that language is not neutral. Language carries ideas that while there is often more than one choice in terms of which word to use, often the words from which you are choosing are not equal in terms of the reality that they communicate. Think about the difference between calling a place the projects versus calling that same place public housing. Both phrases refer to a particular geographical space, but calling a neighborhood the projects as opposed to public housing communicates something very different and more negative about this neighborhood. Often students use words that they hear more commonly used, so referring to the projects as opposed to public housing usually indicates that they have not thought enough about their word choices or thought about the impact of those choices. As this example points out, we have a variety of words from which to choose when constructing a message. Successful speakers recognize that in addition to choosing words that help with clarity and vividness, it is important to think about the connotations associated with one word or the other. When speakers are not careful in terms of word choice in this sense, it is possible to lose credibility with the audience 
and to create the perception that you are not someone that perhaps, that you are someone that perhaps you are not. If you use the projects instead of public housing, audience members may view you as someone who has negative perceptions of people who live in public housing when you do not feel that way at all. Clearly, not being careful about language choices can be a costly mistake. For our purposes here, there are two ways to think about communication and ethics. First, ethical communication is that which does not unfairly label one thing or another based on personal bias. So, in addition to choosing public housing over the projects, an ethical speaker will choose terms that steer away from intentional bias. For example, pro-life speakers would refrain from calling pro-choice people pro-abortion since the basic principle of, pro, of the pro-choice position is that it is up to the person, not society, to choose whether or not an abortion is acceptable. That's a very different position than being pro-abortion. Indeed, many pro-choice citizens would not choose abortion if faced with an unplanned pregnancy. Therefore, calling them pro-abortion does not reflect the real reality of the situation. Rather, it is the purposeful and unethical use of one term over another for emotional impact. Similarly, if a pro-choice person is addressing a crowd where religious organizations are protesting against the legality of abortion, it would not be ethical for the pro-choice speaker to refer to the anti-abortion protesters as religious fanatics. Simply because someone is protesting abortion on religious grounds does not make that person a religious fanatic. And as in the first example, choosing the latter phrase is an, another purposeful and unethical use of one term over another for emotional impact. A second way to link communication and ethics is to remember that ethical speakers attempt to communicate reality to the best of their ability. Granted, as was noted above, each person's social reality is different depending on background, influences, and cultural institutions. For example, but regardless of whether you think that a lake is, good or, is a good or bad thing, lakes still exist in reality. Regardless of whether or not you think rocks are useful or not, rocks still exist. So ethical communication also means trying to define or explain your subject in terms that are closely tied to an objective reality as is possible. It is your best attempt to communicate accurately about your topic. Sexist and heterist language are two types of language to be avoided by ethical speakers because each type of language does communicate inaccuracies to the audience. Sexist and heterosexist language. One of the primary means by which speakers regularly communicate inaccurate information is through the use of sexist language. In spite of the fact that the modern language associated deemed sexist language as grammatically incorrect back in the 1970s, many people and institutions, including most colleges and universities, still regularly use sexist language in their communication. 
An argument I regularly hear from students is that language has always been sexist. This is a fact, not true. As Dale Spender notes in her book, Man Made Language, until 1946, when John Kirkby formulated his 88 grammatical rules, the words they and their were used in sentences for sex indeterminable sentences. Spender, 1990, page 148 through 149. Kirby's rule number 21 stated that the male sex was more comprehensive than the female and thus argued that he was the grammatically correct way to note men and women in writing where mixed sexed or sexed indeterminable situations are referred to. Spender, 1990, 148 through 149. Women were not given equal access to education at this time, and thus the male grammarians who filled the halls of the academy and had no incentive to disagree with Mr. Kirby accepted his 88 rules in full. Interestingly, though, the general population was not as easily convinced, perhaps because they were not used to identifying women as men in language, or perhaps it did not make rational sense to do so. The general public ignored rule number 21. Incensed by the continued misuse of they, male grammarians were influential in the passing of the 1850 Act of Parliament, which legally asserted that he stood for she, Spender, 1991-50. Yes, you read that correctly. Parliament passed legislation in an effort to promote the use of sexist language, and it worked. Eventually, the rule was adhered to by the public, and thus we have the regularly and rarely challenged use of sexist language. But this use of language was not natural or even normal for many millennia. Pretending that we haven't learned about the work of Dale Spender, let's assume that language has always been sexist. Even if language was always sexist, that does not make the use of sexist language right. We wouldn't make a similar argument about racist language, so that argument isn't any stronger with regard to language that is sexist. It simply isn't acceptable today to use sexist language. And by learning to avoid these common mistakes, you can avoid using language that is grammatically incorrect, unethical, and problematic. See Table 10.1 for examples of sexist and non-sexist language. First, you should avoid the use of what is called the generic he or man, which is in use of terms such as mankind instead of humankind or humanity or the use of man or he to refer to all people. A common response from students with regard to the use of generic he is that the word is intended to represent men and women. Therefore, when it's used, it's not used to be sexist. If it were really the case that people truly recognized in their minds that the term man includes women, then when we talk about situations in which man has difficulty giving birth, spenda, spender, 1990, page 156, or the impact of menstruation on man's biology. Of course, we do not say these, those things because they simply wouldn't make sense to us. Perhaps you now see why the people of the 17 and 18 hundreds had trouble switching from non-sexist to sexist language. It defied their own common sense, just as discussing how man gets pregnant defies yours. 
Second, you should avoid using manly terms, which are terms such as fireman or policeman. It is appropriate to use these terms when you know that the people you are speaking about are men only, but if you do not know for sure, or if you're talking about groups generally, you should avoid using these term, these types of terms and replace them with firefighters and police officers. College and universities should replace fresh men with first-year students, and so should you. Other non-job-oriented words also suffer from the same problem. People often note that tables need to be manned rather than staffed and that items are man-made instead of human-made or handmade. A final common use of sexist language occurs when people use spotlighting when discussing the occupations of men and women. How often have you heard or used a phrase such as, he's a male nurse or that's a female lawyer? When we spotlight these in these ways, we are pointing out that the person is deviating from the norm and implying that someone's sex is relevant to a particular job. According to Petchy, in the English language, there is a very strong tendency to place the adjective, adjective expressing the most defining characteristic closest to the noun. Petchy, 2003, page 118. Thus, as Turner points out, a phrase like the old intelligent woman violates our sense of correct, not because there's anything wrong with the word order grammatically, but because it contradicts our customary way of thinking that values youth over age. Petchy 2003, page 118. If you talk about a male nurse or a female cop, you risk communicating to the audience that you believe the most salient aspect of a particular job is the sex of the person that normally does it. And some audience members may not appreciate that assumption on your part. The use of sexist language is not just grammatically incorrect, it is also linked to ethics because it communicates a reality that does not exist, it is not accurate. Man-linked language communicates male superiority and that there are more men than women because women are regularly erased linguistically in speech and writing. Man-linked terms and spotlighting communicate that some job activities are appropriate for men but not women and vice versa by putting a focus on the sex of a person as linked to their job or activity. Finally, the use of the generic he or man communicates that men are the norm and women deviate from that norm. If all humans are called man, what does that say about women? Sexist language can also eliminate what young males and females believe they can accomplish in their lives. Ethical speakers should therefore avoid using language that communicates these sexist practices. Speakers who choose to communicate to use sexist language are not only speaking in a manner that is grammatically incorrect, they are also risking com communicating negative ideas about themselves to audience members. Often the use of sexist language is because of a careless error. So be careful about a language choice that, so that you don't accidentally communicate something about yourself that you didn't intend or that isn't true. Remember that if one person in your audience is offended by some aspect of your language use, they may share their opinions with others in the room. If that one person is a leader of a large group or is someone whose opinions people care about, 
Offending that one audience member may cause you to lose many other audience members as well. Heterosexist language is language that assumes heterosexual orientation of a group or group of people. Be careful when speaking not to use the words or phrases that assume the sexual orientation of your audience members. Do not make the mistake of pointing to someone in your audience as an example and discussing that person with the assumption that she is heterosexual by saying something like, let's say this woman here is having trouble with her husband. When thinking of examples to use, consider using names that could ring true for heterosexuals and homosexuals alike. Instead of talking about Pat and Martha, discuss an issue involving Pat and Chris. Not only will you avoid language that assumes everyone's partner is of the opposite sex, you will also better your chances of persuading, of persuading using your example. If the use of sex-specific names doesn't ring true with members of your audience that are homosexual, it is possible that they are not as likely to continue listening to your example with the same level of interest. They are more likely to follow your example if they are confronted immediately with names that assume a heterosexual relationship. There are, of course, ethical considerations of, as well. Because it is likely that your entire audience is not heterosexual, and certainly they do not all hold heterosexist attitudes, using heterosexist language is another way that speakers may alienate audience members. In reality, the world is not completely heterosexual, and even in, in the unlikely case that you are speaking to a room of com consisting completely of heterosexuals. Many people have friends or relatives that are homosexual, so the use of heterosexist language to construct the world as if this were not the case runs counter to ethical communication. Hi class, Dr. T here. This seems like a good stopping point for us since we're running just over 17 minutes for this section. So if you need to, take a break and come on back and we will start again on avoiding common language pitfalls. You took a break. Welcome back. Let's jump back in our material. Avoiding language pitfalls. There are other aspects of language you should consider when thinking about how language choices impact the audience's perception of you. Profanity. It seems obvious, but this fact bears repeating. You should refrain from using profanity in your speeches. One of the primary rules of all aspects of public speaking, audience analysis, delivery, topic selection, etc., is that you should never ignore audience expectations. Audience do not expect speakers to use profane language, and in most cases, doing so will hurt your credibility with the audience. It is true that certain audience will not mind an occasional profane word used for effect, but unless you're speaking to a group of people with whom you are very familiar, it is difficult to know for sure whether the majority of the audience will respond positively or negatively to such language use. If you even offend one person in an audience, and that person happens to be an opinion leader for the audience members, the negative impact of your language on that one person could end up having a much larger influence on the audience's perception of you. Exaggeration. Speakers should also be careful about exaggeration. 
Hyperbole is the use of moderate exaggeration for effect and is an acceptable and useful language strategy. What is not acceptable, however, is the use of exaggeration to an extent that you risk losing credibility. For example, while it is acceptable to note that it snows in South Texas as often as pigs fly, it would not be acceptable to state it never snows in South Texas. In the first case, you are using hyperbole as a form of exaggeration meant to creatively communicate an idea. In the second case, your use of exaggeration is stating something that is not true. It is unwise to use words such as never and always when speaking. It may be the case that speakers make this mistake accidentally because they are not careful with regard to word choice. We so easily throw words like always and never around in everyday conversation that this tendency transfers onto our public speeches when we're not thinking carefully about word choice. There are two problems with the careless use of exaggeration. First, when you use words like always and never, it is not likely that the statement you are making is true, as very few things always or never happen. Therefore, audiences might mistake your careless use of language for an attempt to purposefully misrepresent the truth. Second, when you suggest something that something always or never happens, you are explicitly challenging your audience members to offer up evidence that contradicts your statement. Such a challenge may serve to impact your credibility negatively with the audience as an audience member can make you look careless and or silly by pointing out that your never or always statement is incorrect. Powerless language. Finally, think about using powerful language when speaking. Because women are more likely than men to be socialized to take the feelings of others into account, women tend to use less powerful language than men. Gamble and Gamble, 2003, page 62. Both men and women, however, can use language that communicates a lack of power. In some cases, speakers use powerless language that communicates uncertainty. For example, a speaker might say, it seems to me that things are getting worse, or in my estimation, things are getting worse. These phrases communicate a lack of certainty in your statements. It is likely that in these cases of these speeches, the speaker is arguing that some problems, some problem is getting worse. Therefore, more powerful language would be acceptable. Simply state that things are getting worse and don't weaken your statement with phrases that communicate uncertainty. Speakers should also be aware of hedges, tag questions, and qualifiers. Examples of hedges would include, I thought that we should, or I sort of think, or maybe we should, Use more powerful statements such as, we should, or I believe. In addition, speakers should avoid the use of tag questions, which are also quick questions at the end of a statement that also communicate uncertainty. People use tag questions might add a statement with, don't you think, or don't you agree, rather than flatly stating what they believe because it can appear to audiences that you are seeking validation for your statements. Qualifiers such as around or about make your sentences less definitive, so generally avoid using them. Interestingly, however, there are cases where using less powerful language may be useful. 
While a full discussion of these instances is out of the purview of this chapter, good speakers will recognize when they should use more, more or less powerful language. I tell my students that there are some cases when negotiation between two or more parties is the key and that in these instances, using language that communicates complete certainty might impede fruitful negotiations because other parties may incorrectly perceive you as inflexible. On the other hand, in some cases, you might win an argument or beat another speaker in order to, to even get to the negotiation table. And in those cases, the use of more powerful language may be warranted. It bears repeating that better speakers know how to use language in response to specific contexts in order to be successful. Hence, thinking about what contexts require more or less powerful language is always a good idea. Incorrect grammar. While the use of sexist or heterosexist language may imply some negative qualities about you to your audience, the use of incorrect grammar in your speech will explicitly communicate negative attitudes about you quite clearly. There are four primary means by which incorrect grammar tends to make its way into speeches, including basic error, mispronunciations, regionalisms, and colloquialisms. Basic errors occur when people make simple mistakes in grammar because of carelessness or lack of knowledge. If you are unsure about the grammatical structure of a sentence, ask someone. Practicing your speech in front of others can help you catch mistakes. Grammatical errors can also happen when speakers aren't familiar enough with their speech. If you do not know your topic well and have not given yourself an adequate amount of time for practice, you may fumble some during your speech and use incorrect grammar that you normally wouldn't use. One of the most regular critiques made of President George B. Bush is that he reg regularly made grammatical errors in public. In one case, President Bush stated, rarely is the question asked, is our children learning? In another instance, he stated, I have a different vision of leadership. A leadership is someone who brings people together. Bushisms, 2007. When President Bush makes these mistakes, many people take note, and it gives his detractors ammunition to critique his ability to lead. Unlike President Bush, you do not have a team of public relations specialists ready to explain away your grammatical error, so you should take great care to make sure that you're prepared to speak. In addition, you must be sure that you are pronouncing words correctly. In one instance, I had a student who began discussing the philosopher Plato. Instead, she pronounced his name Plateau instead of Plato. I could see students glancing at each other and rolling their eyes in response to this mistake. Indeed, it was even difficult for me to pay attention after the mistake because it was such a blatant error. Many pronunciation mistakes, especially when you're pronouncing words that the uh, general public deems ordinary, can seriously impede your credibility. It was likely difficult for students to take this speaker's remaining comments seriously after she made such a big mistake.
If you're unsure about how to pronounce a word, check it with someone or with a dictionary to make sure you're pronouncing it correctly. In fact, many online dictionaries, such as Merriam-Webster and Dictionary.com, now include a function that allows you to hear how a word is pronounced. And if it's a word you're not used to saying, such as a technical or a medical term, practice saying it aloud 10 to 20 times a day until you're comfortable with the word. Remember that our mouths are machines and our tongues, teeth, cheeks, lips, etc. all work together to pronounce sounds. When faced with a word that our mouths are not yet trained to say, it is more likely that we'll mispronounce a word or stutter some on it during our speech. But if you practice saying a word out loud several times a day leading up to your speech, you're less likely to make a mistake and your confidence will be boosted instead of heard in the midst of your speech. Some grammar problems occur because people use regionalisms when speaking, which may pose a problem for people in the audience not familiar with the term being used. Regionalisms are customary words or phrases used in different geographic regions. For example, growing up in Texas, I used y'all, while my students in Pennsylvania might use yuans or yins to a group of people. In the South, some people use the phrase Coke to mean any soft drink because Coca-Cola uh, is headquartered in Atlanta, while in Northeast, a Coke might be called a tonic, and in other regions, it might be called a pop or soda pop. You must be careful when using regional terms because your audience may not interpret your message correctly if they are not familiar with the regionalisms you're using. Try to find the terms that are broader in their use, perhaps using you all or soft drink instead of regional terms you may be used to using in everyday conversations. Another grammar issue often linked to region is the use of colloquialisms. Colloquialisms are words or phrases used in informal speech, but not typically used in formal speech. Using the word crick instead of creek is one example of a colloquialism. And in some areas, I'm getting ready to cook dinner would be said, I'm fixing to make dinner. Colloquialisms can also be phrased phrases that stem from particular regions. In some regions, nice clothes are often referred to as your Sunday best. And in some areas, when people are preparing to vacuum, they note that they are getting, to, getting ready to red up the place, make it ready for visitors. Like regionalisms, an audience understanding your use of colloquialisms depend on your familiarity with the language tendencies of a certain geographic area. So steering clear of the use of their use can help you make sure that your message is understood by your audience. Another problem that regionalisms and colloquialisms have in common is that some audience members may consider their use a sign of lesser intellect because they are not considered proper grammar. So you also risk leaving a bad impression of yourself with audience members if you make these language choices for a formal presentation. Other language choices to consider. Clichés are phrases or expressions that, because of overuse, have lost their rhetorical power. Examples include sayings such as, 
the early bird gets the worm, or making a mountain out of a molehill. Phrases such as these were once powerful ways of communicating an idea, but because of overuse, these phrases just don't have the impact they once had. Using cliches in your speech runs the risk of having two negative attributions being placed on you by audience members. First, your audience members may feel that your use of a cliche communicates that you didn't take the speech seriously and or were lazy in constructing it. Second, your audience members may perceive you as someone who is not terribly creative. Cliches are an easy way to communicate your message, but you might pay for that ease with negative feelings about you as a speaker from your audience. Try to avoid using cliches so audiences are more likely to perceive you positively as a speaker. Another consideration for speakers is whether or not to use language central to the popular culture of a time period. Whether we're talking about Groovy Man from the 1970s or Like Totally Awesome from the 1980s or Word to Your Mother from the 1990s, the language central to the popular culture of any time is generally something to be avoided in formal public speaking. Like slang or profanity, language stemming from popular culture can be limited in its appeal. Some audience may not understand it. Some audiences may negatively evaluate you for this language that is too informal, and other audiences will have negative preconceived notions about the kind of people that use such language. Example, hippies in the 1970s. And they will most likely transfer those negative evaluations on you. Conclusion. This chapter has discussed a number of important aspects of language that good speakers should always consider. It is important for speakers to remember the power of language and to harness that power effectively yet ethically. We've discussed the relationships between the language we use and the way we see the world. The importance of using language that is clear, vivid, stylized, ethical, and reflects well on you as a speaker. The difference between choosing one word or another can be as significant as an audience member remembering your presentation or forgetting it and or an audience turning against you and your ideas. Taking a few moments to add some alliteration or to check for language that might offend others is time very well spent. The next time you have to write or speak about an issue, remember the importance of language and its impact on our lives. Carefully consider what language you will use and how those language, choice, how those language choices make a difference in how your audience defines and understands your topic. This concludes Chapter 10, Using Language Well.